the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And Matthew adds, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have a lot of good intentions, don't we? You know, we always have a lot of good intentions, how we want to serve the Lord, how we want to pray more, how we want to witness more, how we want to, you know, stay strong, how we want to resist temptation. And, and yet Jesus says right here, look, the spirit is willing. There's a lot of things we want to do in our spirit, but the flesh is weak. And you know, the remedy to a weak flesh is more prayer. Jesus says it right here, pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It can be incredibly hard to keep going when you've hit the end of your rope. The world seems to be against you, and you just don't know what to do next. That's when Jesus has an important suggestion for you. Pray. Today, Pastor Gary will be sharing a time at the end of Jesus' ministry when he knew death was near. He knew he was going to suffer, so he prayed. He went to his Heavenly Father, and he encouraged his followers to do the same. Go to your Heavenly Father and let Him comfort you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke, chapter 22, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. It's Luke 22. We are approaching here the final few days of Jesus' life on earth before He is... um, crucified and uh, buried. And so as we come to the closing chapters of Luke, that's where we are. These are the final few days of Jesus' life. He has just finished sharing what we commonly call the Last Supper with his disciples, which is really uh, the Passover meal, wherein Jesus took a portion of the Passover meal. He applies it to himself as the greater deliverer than simply how the Jews were delivered from their slavery in Egypt after 400 years. That was the basis for the first Passover meal. Jesus then here, 1,400 years after the days of Moses, turns the Passover meal to himself, saying that ultimately appointed to his ultimate redemption of mankind, his death on the cross, that would be the greatest deliverance for us from sin and death. And so they have partaken together, and he is still in this setting here, of the Last Supper in the upper room with his disciples just before he crosses over the Kidron Valley into the the olive grove uh, called Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. So Luke chapter 22, we left off right around verse 31 where Jesus predicted about Simon Peter that he would betray him. In verse 31, Simon, Simon, Jesus says his name twice, that's Simon Peter. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, 
strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Little overestimation of his own courage, wouldn't you say? And verse 34, Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? And this is a reference back to Luke chapter 10, when he sent them two by two and kind of given them a preview, a a foretaste of what it would be like to serve him in ministry, to go around uh, uh, healing the sick, casting out demons. And so he refers to that. He says, you know, when I sent you out without purse, um, of course, you know, he's speaking about a man bag. Or sandals, because there's nothing worse than a man with a man bag and sandals. But, you know, it's the day, it's the time, all right? I could make a comment about one of the pastors, but I won't do that right here. (laughs) When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. And he said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. (laughs) It's all cultural, folks. And... Also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, now this gets interesting here, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. And he says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And the disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. So Jesus goes Second Amendment on us right here. I mean, the right to bear arms. Uh, But before we get into that, let's just look at this, because these are his closing words before they will leave the upper room, before they then, um, Matthew, I think uh, his gospel says that they sang a hymn, which is traditional at the close of the Passover meal, to sing one of the uh, psalms. And so they would have sung a psalm, they would have uh, uh, worshipped together, and then they departed and they went to the Mount of Olives, where they typically would find lodging during the Passover feast. They would just sleep out there under the stars and find lodging on the Mount of Olives. And, and Jesus now is saying to them something kind of peculiar. He says, I want you to go ahead and, and take a bag, take some belongings, and by the way, if you don't have a sword, sell a cloak and buy a sword. Uh, Why would he be saying this? Because what he's saying to them is, I'm soon going to be departing. I'm not going to be with you. But remember, Jesus was a great source of provision and protection. Wherever Jesus went, they were provided for. There was never a hungry day among the disciples when you're with Jesus. Because if you go hungry and they don't have anything, he's just going to multiply some bread and fish. So they're always going to be provided for. And they always have great protection because they have the mighty arm of the Lord with them. And basically, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be with you much longer. So you need to take care of yourselves in terms of provision and protection. Now, he was not telling them to bear arms for the purpose of being aggressive. He wasn't suggesting to them that they should spread the gospel by the sword, okay? That's Islam, and it isn't a gospel. But it's the idea of spreading the message by the sword. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you better prepare for a defensive posture, Because you're going to face days when you will be persecuted and you will be attacked. So he tells them to arm themselves. Now, in a few minutes here, one of the guys, we're going to find out later that it's Peter, is going to actually use the sword. And Jesus cautions him about how he's using it because Jesus is going to address this whole issue of he didn't tell him to do that to be aggressive, to be warlike but to defend themselves because it's going to get scary and it's going to get um, warlike and they're going to experience some persecution here. So, so he encourages them, take, 
take a, get a sword and, and sell a cloak if you need one. But he adds there in verse 37, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Some of your Bibles have a footnote, as does mine, Isaiah 53, verse 12. He is quoting from the Old Testament scriptures about himself. And he adds there, he says, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. He points them to their own scriptures, and once again, he's trying to let his own disciples know that what Isaiah prophesied, as well as 300 other prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Messiah, were fulfilled in Jesus. He wants them to clearly get this final message before he goes to the cross. Please understand. Here's one more quote from scripture. You know who I am, right? I am Messiah. This must be fulfilled in me. I will be numbered among the transgressors. Transgressors being the sinners, a reference ultimately to his death on the cross. Jesus dies between two thieves, between two sinners. And so that's a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. And the disciples said, they have no reaction to the verse, you know, which is kind of peculiar. They don't stop and say, right on, you are Messiah. They just move right to the sword thing. A couple, you know, these are, these are a bunch of guys, right? So they just, they're interested in their swords. They go, yeah, we got some swords. How about this? Whatever you said, Isaiah, whatever. But we got swords. And Jesus says, okay, too, that's enough. You know, I, I'm not wanting you to become an army. I just want you to defend yourself. So two among, I mean, Judas is gone now at this point. So two among 11 is fine. Well, it tells us now, verse 39, that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. Only Luke mentions that, the distance of about a stone's throw. Knelt down and prayed, Father, If you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So here's this scene here where he goes out to the Mount of Olives and, uh, and prays just before he's about to be crucified. Uh, Luke does not mention this particular garden, but uh, Mark and Matthew do. It is the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane translates oil press from two Hebrew words, got meaning press and shemen meaning oil. So at this particular place along the Mount of Olives, was a grove that was used in particular for pressing the olives to extract the oil. So at this particular place where Jesus is praying, it is known as Gethsemane, Gat Shemen, meaning the place where olives were pressed. It's very fitting, and I want to spoil because in a couple of weeks when we're in Israel with the next group here, I give this little Bible study about this, but it's very fitting when you think about it. Here Jesus is under the most excruciating pressure at a place where there is excruciating pressure. In order to produce the best of the oil from the olives, there's this olive press, and that's the scene here where Jesus is located here under this excruciating pressure of the anxiety and this moment when he knows that the cross is before him and he sees death and suffering and the beating and the scourging that is right before him. And so he's in this agony. And only Luke mentions in the four Gospels, only Luke mentions what we see here in verse 43 when he talks about how an angel came and ministered 
to Jesus. There in verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Only Luke mentions this, but it is a beautiful scene of how Jesus, in the midst of his excruciating agony, anticipating the cross, God sends an angel to minister to him, to comfort him, and to encourage him. Now, Luke has, comparatively speaking, a bit of a fascination with angels. He mentions angels more than the other three Gospels combined. Luke mentions the topic of angels 15 times. Uh, Next to him is Matthew. Matthew mentions angels six times. John mentions angels once. Mark mentions them zero. So Luke is the one who talks about angels more than the other Gospel writers combined. And here is this occasion where he talks about how an angel came from heaven and ministers to Jesus in the midst of his agony. And then Luke also mentions something unique to his gospel. And this is fitting for, because we know the Bible tells us that Luke was a doctor. He's the only one who mentions uh, Jesus sweating drops of blood. The medical diagnosis is hematidrosis. It is a documented fact where people under the most intense, excruciating uh, moments of agony and anxiety can actually burst little capillaries in their brow and their forehead, and you can sweat, you can perspire uh, droplets of blood. That is what is happening here. So you have to try to imagine how intense this is, how intense this is, what he knows is before him, the suffering, the pain, the agony, so much so that he's in anguish. But what does it say? He prayed more earnestly there in verse 44. Now, Matthew, when Matthew talks about this whole scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew says that he went away and prayed three different times. Matthew says, first time, he says to Peter, James, and John, let's leave the others a little bit here, and you three come with me a little bit more of a distance. And Peter, James, and John go with Jesus, and then Jesus goes a little bit further. He says, just wait here now, I'm going to go over there and pray. Matthew tells us he comes back, finds them sleeping, goes back and prays, comes back, finds them sleeping, goes back again. And so three times Matthew records how Jesus goes and prays, and twice when he comes back, he finds them asleep. Now, I'm sure nobody can relate to this. Whenever you've tried to pray, and then you fall asleep, right? But that's what's happening here. And it says in particular the reason that they fell asleep was because, verse 45, they were exhausted from sorrow. Maybe they did get more than what is recorded in the conversation here. The whole Passover meal, the whole Last Supper... It's weighing heavy on their hearts now. They are sorrowful because they're beginning to understand here, maybe even for the first time, what Jesus means when he talks about his imminent death. And so they're so exhausted from sorrow that they fall asleep. And Jesus says to them in verse 46, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And Matthew adds in his gospel, Matthew 26, 41, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And Matthew adds the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have a lot of good intentions, don't we? You know, we always have a lot of good intentions, how we want to serve the Lord, how we want to pray more, how we want to witness more, how we want to, you know, stay strong, how we want to resist temptation. And, and yet Jesus says right here, look, the spirit is willing. There's a lot of things we want to do in our spirit, but the flesh is weak. And you know, the remedy to a weak flesh is more prayer. Jesus says it right here, pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray. Prayer. For those of you who like to take notes, there's a few things here we can glean from his, this time of prayer here in the Garden of Gethsemane. One is the posture of prayer. It tells us here that he knelt 
in verse 41. He knelt when he prayed. But, you know, there's no real perfect posture. You can pray in whatever posture you want. There's an example in the Bible of standing uh, when you pray in Mark 11.25. Sitting when you pray. David sat in 2 Samuel 7.18. And falling prostrate before the Lord on your face on the ground in Matthew 26.39. That's what it says in Matthew's gospel about the Garden of Gethsemane. When it talks about the third time Jesus went away, fell on his face and prayed. So there's no one right posture. It's more important that you pray than what posture you are praying. And then we also see here in the context that there's a passion for prayer, which is basically when you pour out your heart towards God. And we read in Psalm 62, verse 8, David said, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And what was the passion of Jesus here? How was he pouring out his heart? He was basically praying as he encouraged his own disciples, pray that you fall not into temptation. And that's not just a temptation of, you know, sin. It can also be, for example, he was concerned that they might be tempted to bail. Uh, They might be tempted to deny him. They might be tempted to run and flee, which they will do because they're not praying. Um, But there's also this element here where his passion is that if there's another way that this can be accomplished. This is what he prays. Father, if there's any other way, if you're willing, take this cup from me, meaning the cup of suffering. If there's another way to accomplish the plan of redemption besides the the cup of suffering, then take it from me. That's what he does when he pours out his heart here. And when we pray, it doesn't matter what posture you take, and the passion is pour out your heart. Uh, Pour out your heart to God. God is a big God. He can take all your emotions. Don't hold back. There was a guy asking me today, you know, is it okay if if I pray and just kind of like, you know, blurt out all these things to the Lord? Or should I should I temper some of the things I say to God? I said, let me tell you, when you read through the book of Psalms and you see how David prayed, he didn't temper much of anything. I mean, he's even praying, God, kill the people I don't like. I'm not recommending that. I'm just that's not necessarily a pattern of prayer for us to follow, but it's an example for us as a principle that David was not afraid to pour out even the deepest, darkest things of his own heart because God is a big God and he can take our prayers. Some of you are angry at God and and it's okay to express it to the Lord. He can take it. I'm not saying it's right to stay there. I'm just saying that all our emotions are God created us as beings. He understands our emotion. And it's okay to just pour out your heart to God, whatever that might be, and allow God to minister to you and to return his goodness and his grace for you, depending on whatever your need is. But that's the passion part of prayer. Don't hold back with God. And Romans 8 says that even there are times you don't even know how to pray, and the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Even there are times you don't even know how to pour out your heart and you kind of are speechless. And in Romans 8, it tells us how the Holy Spirit will then translate what's in our heart to the heart of God on our behalf. So pray and pour out your heart to God. Make your passion known to him. Jesus did. But then thirdly, the last thing is the purpose of prayer. And this is sometimes a hard one for us to grasp. But the purpose for prayer really always is to align your will with the will of God. Because notice, that's where Jesus ends all of this. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So it's okay to pour out your passion. Jesus pours out his passion. Here's my heart. I wish there was another way to do this. If it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. At the end of the prayer, the resolve is, may God's will be done, and may I have the grace to follow and accept whatever his will is. 
See, prayer is not manipulating God to just get what we want. God is not a vending machine that we just pull the lever and then all of a sudden we're going to get what we want. Um, God is not like this, you know, dad that we just wear down with our constant nagging like children can tend to do and then we just give in to them and then we think, well, that's what God does with us. No, God has a perfect will for us. Uh, the old TV show, the, the name of it really is true. Father Knows Best. I know some of you are too young to even know what I'm talking about. But Father does know best. Your Father in Heaven always knows best for us. So then why, if we are just aligning ourselves with the will of God, is it necessary that we should even pour out our passion when we're only going to get what God's will is anyway? Right? Have you ever thought that? What's the purpose then of praying if I'm never going to change God's mind? He's just going to end up giving me what he wants instead of what I want. Well, here's the deal. Sometimes God's will is actually what you want, but James says that you have not because you ask not. And until you ask, God is not obligated necessarily to deliver. But what he loves is when his children come to him, align themselves with his will, and maybe the whole time God was saying, yes, that's exactly what I had in mind for you, but I was waiting for you to ask. And now that you've asked, I want to show my goodness to you. Because if God gave it to you in advance, how would you ever know that it was an answer to prayer? So God has a will and what he wants for you, but sometimes he wants us to ask just so that we can see the wonderful, beneficent hand of our Father that is activated upon our submission to him. And so pray. Doesn't matter what the posture is. God is big enough to handle whatever passion you give and you pour out. But align yourself ultimately. It's the desire to align ourselves with the will of God to see his will accomplished in our lives. And that's what we see here that Jesus models. And so verse 47, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up. uh, And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Okay, now, here are the the boys with the swords. They're like, maybe this is what Jesus meant. All right, we're ready. Should we strike with our swords? And one of them, verse 50, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Interesting that he's, what he says here. So he finishes praying, and he's speaking to his disciples about getting up, and then It tells us here how a crowd came to him. Now, Matthew's gospel says a large crowd. John's gospel says a band of men. And it is likely, again, this is some kind of a detachment of the Roman army, probably a a cohort, which in those days was 480 soldiers. It is likely that when you think about a cohort and some other, you know, just kind of vagabonds that wander onto the scene and, and you know, uh, some motley crew that comes along and just attaches themselves to this, to this kind of a gang mob thing here, there's probably five to 600 people who have come. And among them, then, Jesus probably looks very average, You know, he's not like he's portrayed on the Bible series, my friends, okay? The Bible series that just came, Roma Downing, you know, that whole whole thing. Okay, they picked an Italian model. That was Jesus, okay? An Italian model who's about a head taller than anybody else. Guarantee you that's not how Jesus looked. 
because Isaiah says that there was nothing about his countenance that we should desire him. The Gospel of Luke takes a unique look at the life of Christ from his birth to his ministry, his death and resurrection. Luke described Jesus as the Son of Man, one of his favorite ways to refer to himself. Jesus was God in human form, showing all of us what it means to live a completely sinless life. There was no fault to be found in him, yet Jesus was still nailed to a cross. But his death had purpose too. He stood in for you, taking the punishment your sin deserves. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death and the evil one. What an amazing Savior this Son of Man truly is. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus, or would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. Find out service times and more information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and be able to download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know